So today's Bible reading comes from Mark chapter 7. The Pharisees and some of the teachers of the law who had come from Jerusalem gathered around Jesus and saw some of his disciples eating food with hands that were defiled, that is, unwashed. The Pharisees and all the Jews do not eat unless they give their hands a ceremonial washing, holding to the tradition of the elders. When they come from the marketplace, they do not eat unless they wash, and they observe many other traditions such as the washing of cups, pitchers, and kettles. So the Pharisees and the teachers of the law asked Jesus, why don't your disciples live according to the tradition of the elders instead of eating their food with defiled hands? He replied, Isaiah was right when he prophesied about you hypocrites, as it is written, these people honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. They worship me in vain. Their teachings are merely human rules. So you have to let go of the commands of God and are holding on to human traditions. And he continued, You have a fine way of setting aside the commands of God in order to observe your own traditions. For Moses said, honor your father and mother, and anyone who curses their father or mother is to to be put to death. But you say that if anyone declares that what might have been used to help their their father or mother is Corbin, that is, devoted to God, then you no longer let them do anything for their father and mother. Thus you nullify the word of God by your tradition that you have handed down, and you do many things like that. Again, Jesus called the crowd to him and said, listen to me, everyone, and understand this. Nothing outside a person can defile them by going into them. Rather, it is what comes out of a person that defiles them. After he he had left the crowd and entered the house, his disciples asked him about his parable. Are you so dumb? He asked. Don't you see that nothing that enters a person from the outside can defile him? For it doesn't go into their heart, but into their stomach and then out of the body. In saying this, Jesus declared all foods clean. He went on, what comes out of a person is what defiles them. For it is from out of our person's heart that evil thoughts come, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, greed, malice, deceit, lewdness, envy, slander, arrogance, and folly. All these evil come from inside and defile a person. Jesus left that place and went to the vicinity of Tyre. He entered a house and did not want anyone to know it, yet he could not keep his presence secret. In fact, as soon as he heard about him, as soon as she heard about him, a woman whose little daughter was possessed by an impure spirit came and fell at his feet. The woman was a Greek born in Syria, Phoenicia. She begged Jesus to drive the demon out of her daughter. First, let the children eat all they want, he told her, for it is for it is not right to take the children's bread and toss it to the dogs. Lord, she replied, even the dogs under the table eat the children's crumbs. Then he told her, for such a reply, you may go. The demon has left your daughter. She went home and found her child laying on the bed and the demon gone. Then Jesus left the vicinity of Tyre and went through Sidon, down to the Sea of Galilee and into the region of Decapolis. There some people brought to him a man who was deaf and could hardly talk, and they begged Jesus to place his hand on him. After he took him aside, away from the crowd, Jesus put his finger into the man's ears. Then he spit and touched the man's tongue. He looked up to heaven and with a deep sigh said to him, Ephatha, which means be opened. At this, the the man's ears were opened. His tongue was loosened and and he began to speak plainly. Jesus commanded them not to tell anyone, but the more he did so, the more they kept talking about it. People were overwhelmed with amazement. He has done everything well, they said. He even makes the deaf hear and the mute speak. Good morning, everyone. Can't really see you all that well, but anyway, hope you're doing fine. Now, into the midst of a world full of ethnic and religious division, a world in which people are afflicted by the demonic and also disability, the good news is the kingdom of God has come. This is the point of Jesus coming into the world. Jesus has come to make a difference. Today's passage in Mark chapter 7 speaks to us of at least four differences that we've fundamentally seen coming into the world as a result of Jesus turning up and With Jesus turning up, we have the inbreaking of the kingdom of God into the world. Now, the first difference is spoken about in verses 1 to 23.
Jesus's growing fame led to some of the Jewish religious leaders coming up to Jesus to check him out. They consisted of Pharisees and scribes, people who, in theory, were committed to God's word as revealed through Moses. They saw some of Jesus' disciples eating food with unclean, that is, unwashed hands. Now we know that for the sake of good hygiene, it's always a good idea to wash our hands before putting something in our hands to eat it. But the religious leaders checking out Jesus weren't interested in hygiene. They were interested in religion and the Jewish traditions that had been passed on down the centuries. But one of the problems with human tradition is that things get added in or taken away over time in opposition to God's word. And we can see this with the hand-washing tradition that was followed by the Pharisees of Jesus' day. Verses 3 and 4 tell us that the Pharisees and the other Jews used to wash their hands thoroughly before eating. They used to wash their hands after going to the market and they also had rituals for washing cups and pots and bowls. You see, they were concerned about ritual pollution and defilement. But the thing is, None of this was ever commanded by Moses. Sure, the law of Moses made a distinction between clean and unclean foods. It also spoke about how the people of Israel might become ceremonially unclean, such as through having a discharge or by touching someone or something unclean. Washing with water was often prescribed as part of the ritual involved by which an unclean person could become clean again. But nowhere in the law of Moses do we see a commandment requiring ordinary Israelites to wash their hands before eating. I suspect that this custom probably developed as a result of Jews living in environments where a lot of Gentiles also lived. You see, the Jewish people regarded the Gentiles as being unclean. So it kind of makes sense that being surrounded by foreigners or living in areas populated by foreigners, those Jews who took ceremonial cleanliness seriously might want to try to stop any contamination that might occur from living in a ritually unclean environment. But it is to be noted that this wasn't anything commanded in the law of Moses. From a religious perspective then, Jesus' disciples weren't doing anything wrong. So when the Pharisees and scribes questioned Jesus about this, he hit them with a strong critique. We can see this critique in verses 6 through to 13. Jesus starts off his critique with a quote from Isaiah 29, verse 13, where God, talking about Israel, says, This people honours me with their lips, but their hearts are far away from me. They worship me in vain, teaching human commandments as doctrine. One of the problems with Israel back in the time of Isaiah was that they were committed to the ritual of religion without actually living out God's word in their daily lives. And down the generations, it seems, nothing had changed. In verses 8 and 9, Jesus makes his point very strongly. He said to his opponents, Having left the commandment of God, you hold fast to human tradition. You nullify well the commandment of God in order to establish your tradition. In verses 
10 to 12, he gives another example of a Jewish tradition that ended up setting aside the word of God. The tradition about Korban allowed children to disregard the commandment to honour one's parents. Korban in Hebrew basically means gift or offering. The idea seems to be that some Jewish people thought it was okay if they didn't provide for their parents if they had given that wealth up as a sacrifice or offering to God. But a lot of those offerings would have been voluntary. Is it right to do something optional and then to think that you're excused from doing something important and mandatory, like making sure your parents have enough to live on? This was just one example of how the Jewish religious traditions of the day got in the way of God's word. And we see Jesus here calling them out on it. In criticising Jesus' disciples for not following the traditions of the fathers, the Pharisees and scribes were being hypocrites. They were ignoring a much more important tradition in order to keep their tradition. They were ignoring the authoritative tradition of the law of Moses that had originated from God himself. In verses 14 to 23, we see Jesus teaching the crowd about the important issue of where true defilement comes from. The Pharisees and the scribes thought that defilement comes from outside a person. But Jesus teaches that true defilement actually comes from inside of us. When the disciples asked Jesus for more clarification on this teaching, he explained that anything we eat ends up going through our digestive system and literally into the toilet. Notice our Bible versions don't use the word toilet at that point, but Jesus did use the word. Now, if you've ever eaten a bad curry before, you probably know that feeling. Well, it's true that the law of Moses taught the Israelites that ritual defilement can come from what we eat and what we touch. This was ever only meant to be an illustration for God's people to realise that we need to keep away from the moral defilement of the ungodly cultures of the world around us. But true moral defilement, it doesn't come from outside, really. It comes from our hearts. Sure, we can still be influenced badly by what's outside and around us, but evil actually comes from our hearts. Jesus gives a long list of sins in verses 21 and 22. Fornication, theft, murder, adultery, greed, wickedness, deceit, vulgarity, envy, slander, arrogance, and foolishness. All forms of evil like this come from the heart of a person. And friends, this helps us to see the first difference that Jesus makes in our passage today. As a result of Jesus coming into the world, the focus in the law of Moses, which was on the external as an illustration of the internal, this has now changed. And I think the next slide talks about this. The food laws of the law of Moses, no longer apply. In the gospel age, the focus is on the heart of every individual and the need for God's word to be written in our hearts without interference from human tradition or human cultural values. And this makes sense, really, for in the kingdom of God, the word of God must reign supreme. Not only has Jesus made a difference to God's word, 
but he's also made a difference to the scope of God's saving activity. You see, under the old covenant, which was made exclusively with the people of Israel, non-Jews were fundamentally excluded. But with the coming of Jesus, there's a new covenant. And one of the good things about the new covenant is that it's no longer restricted to the people of Israel. The kingdom of God is international in flavour. It's open to anyone of any ethnic background to participate in. And we can see this in the story of the Greek-speaking woman in verses 24 to 30. Jesus went up to the regions of Tyre and Sidon to an area up to 80 kilometres north from the region of Galilee. Jesus was wanting to stay incognito, but a Syrophoenician woman had heard about where Jesus was and knowing something of his reputation as a miracle worker, she came to him asking him to help her daughter who had been afflicted by an unclean spirit. Now, one might think that Jesus might say something like, hey, no worries, just let me finish up my cup of tea and I'll have your daughter up and about in no time. But surprisingly, Jesus doesn't say anything like that. In fact, what he says to the woman is rather shocking if you get what he's implying. Let the children first be fed, for it's not good to take the children's food and throw it to the dogs, Jesus said. Reflecting the Jewish perspective, he's effectively calling the woman a dog. In Jewish thinking, remember, the Gentiles were viewed as being unclean. They could be compared to the dogs that would go roaming around the streets looking for food among the garbage. So Jesus, in a somewhat harsh way, was basically saying the blessings of the covenant, they belong to Israel. And what belongs to Israel shouldn't be shared with non-Israelites. But notice the woman's response. She doesn't tell Jesus off saying, how dare you call me a dirty dog? No. Instead, her response shows a remarkable insight into God's plan of salvation. She responded by saying, Lord, even the dogs under the table eat some of the young children's crumbs. Lord, isn't there an extent to which the Gentiles also benefit from the blessings given to Israel? In reality, in the New Covenant age, it's more than just scraps that are on offer for the Gentiles, isn't it? Thanks to the coming of Jesus and the inbreaking of the kingdom, full salvation, full blessing, full membership in the people of God have come to the nations. You see, God's focus in the new covenant age, it's not just a focus solely upon the nation of Israel. God's focus is on everyone. He's interested in the salvation of the nations of the world. And this international dimension of salvation is the second difference that we see in our passage here that Jesus has made. Now that leaves us with two other differences in our passage that the coming of Jesus has brought into existence. The end of the demonic and the end of disability. What happened when the Syrophoenician woman expressed her faith in God's salvation. She went home, just as Jesus had told her to do, and she found the young child, her daughter, lying in the bed, but significantly, the demon had gone. 
Now, the fact that Jesus cast out this demon and thousands of other demons during his ministry on earth, all of this is a sign that the demons have had their day. There's no place in the kingdom of God for evil spirits. And what about disability? A lot of us probably think, I don't have a disability. I'm not blind or deaf or lame. Praise God that you don't have any major physical issues. But even if you survive any debilitating accidents in life, who knows what your body and mind will be like once you hit old age. At the end of our passage, we see Jesus leaving Tyre and Sidon and coming back down to the region of Galilee and the Decapolis. The word Decapolis refers to the 10 Greek cities that had been established in the area, mainly to the east of the Sea of Galilee. And some of the people from there, they brought to Jesus a deaf man who also had a speech impediment. And they were begging Jesus that he might heal him. Jesus took him aside, placed his fingers into the guy's ears, and spitting out some of his saliva, he touched the guy's tongue with it. Now that might sound a little bit gross. And true, in Jewish thinking, saliva was viewed as gross. But also the saliva of an unclean person could make other people unclean if it touched them. So it's interesting that Jesus can take what is gross and potentially unclean and use it for healing. But we see Jesus, after doing that, he looks up into heaven. He groans and says to the guy in Aramaic, Ephata, which means be opened. And the guy was healed of his disabilities. His ears were opened and the binding of his tongue was released and he started speaking properly. This was so amazing to the crowd that they praised Jesus for the things that he could do so spectacularly well. And friends, here we see the fourth difference that Jesus makes. As a result of the kingdom coming into the world, disabilities are being overcome. The kingdom of God is bringing in the restoration of humans in the image of God, and this has a physical dimension to it. So overall today, what do we see? Well, Mark 7 helps us to understand four particular differences that have come into the world as a result of Jesus bringing in the kingdom. Firstly, the word of God leaves behind externalities and focuses down on people's hearts. Secondly, salvation is opened up to the nations. Thirdly, demons are driven away. And fourthly, disability is overcome. In sum, through Jesus coming into the world and bringing in the kingdom of God, we see restoration and removal. People are being restored, both physically and spiritually while demons are being removed. These are some of the key differences that Jesus makes. Let's give thanks to God for that. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you today that looking at Mark chapter 7, we can see some of the differences that the kingdom of God makes this world. And in the light of... Things have been happening in our world recently, not just the pandemic, but now also the threat of war in Europe. We can easily see how chaotic our world is, how much 
our world is in need of help, really, from ourselves. We thank you, Lord, that as we reflect on the Gospel of Mark and here, Mark chapter 7 in particular, we get a wonderful snapshot through the ministry of Jesus of the differences that the kingdom of God brings. And we thank you, Lord, that through Jesus coming, through the kingdom breaking into the world, we now have a focus of your word, not on the externalities that we see with the people of Israel, when they were concerned with ceremonial uncleanness and sacrifices in the temple. And now we see a focusing on people's hearts and on whether or not our hearts are right with you. And we thank you, Lord, that with this change in the law of Moses across to the gospel, we also get salvation being opened up to the nations. That previous focus on Israel, well, now it's been inverted and all the nations are in view. We thank you that as the gospel goes out into the nations, we see the demons being driven away and we see disability and disease being overcome. Lord God, we need a world like that. But the message of Mark's gospel is, well, that's what the kingdom of God is all about. That's why Jesus has come to bring about the restoration of humanity in the presence of God and to remove all sources of evil. Heavenly Father, thank you for doing this in Jesus and we look forward to the fullness of this being revealed when Jesus returns. It's in his name that we give thanks to you today. Amen. All right, now it's time for the Q&A. Uh, we'll get Reverend Stephen back on. Uh, I think we've got a couple of questions already um, online, so we'll get stuck into it. Um, Steve, you there? Oh, yeah, he is there. All right. Um, all right, first question. Uh, so how come in Leviticus things outside make us unclean, but Jesus says it doesn't now? Yeah, we've recently gone through a series, haven't we, on Leviticus? And we saw a lot there about the system of ceremonial cleansing. And as we looked at that, it wasn't just the sacrifices, but we also saw things about how people can become unclean and they need to be washed. And there were food laws, weren't there, about certain foods that couldn't be eaten. But as we were going through that, we were reflecting on that as Christians and saying, well, all of those aspects of law have really been fulfilled in Jesus. And one of the things we were saying was is that those things are really like illustrations which served a purpose for a period of time. And so in particular, when it comes to the food laws and how Israel weren't to eat strange-type animals, then this was really an illustration telling the people of Israel they needed to be careful of strange practices. In other words, it's a kind of illustration to be careful of external influence where that influence is bad. Now, I did say during my sermon that there can be negative external influence. In fact, most of the ideas we have, a lot of them will probably come from outside into us, but they only become a problem once we accept those things in our hearts. So... It's true that evil comes from the heart, but it's also true even today that the external environment around us can have some effect upon us. It has an effect when we accept that external influence mm. into our hearts and then start living on the basis of what's in our heart at that point. Okay, That can be a good influence. So part of the thing about being a Christian is we want to surround ourselves in a positive, godly environment. We want to listen to God's word so that God's word will come in from outside but then reside in our hearts. And as we have God's word in our hearts, then we'll be living in a fruitful way, a way that over time pleases God more and more. At least that's the, the ideal. 
A similar thing can happen with external influence as well, which is negative. That can also come in if we're not careful and start to reside in our hearts. And then there's a kind of struggle that we have in our hearts between the good and the bad. But basically what Jesus is saying is that the real issue we all have is the issue with our hearts. Okay, so in the Old Testament, in Leviticus, really the point of a lot of those laws regarding food was let's be careful of negative external influences. Okay, and it's a kind of illustration. And the other thing that the food laws did, it did divide Jew from Gentile as well. So in the crossover from the old covenant to the new, to see the food laws breaking down, it makes sense because that then opens up God's law to the nations. And hopefully we learn the lesson of external influence if it's negative. Although you can see that the Pharisees and some of the Jewish people, they struggled with that, didn't they? Those changes that Jesus brought into the world, they had some difficulty accepting those things. In fact, that was one of the reasons why they opposed Jesus. But they should have really understood if they really followed the law of Moses in Deuteronomy 18, verses 15 to 19, we actually get Moses saying, when the second prophet like Moses comes, you must listen to him. Right. So if they were really following the law of Moses, they would have been on the lookout for this second Moses type figure, understanding that Jesus was the fulfillment of that. Think about some of the miracles that Jesus did, like providing uh, food for the people in the wilderness and so on. It's, it's meant to be evoking Moses and some of the miracles that happened in the wilderness at the time of the Exodus. So they should have seen the signs, realized Jesus is the new Moses and accepted what he said. Hopefully that clarifies it for the question asker. Um, Next one. Um, Did demons only appear around Jesus' time? What should Christians think about ghosts now? Popular topic. Uh, Demons have always been around. And it's interesting to think about, okay, we don't exactly know when. When did God create the spiritual beings? But The impression I get is, and this is probably what Jewish tradition would hold as well, is that uh, God actually made the spirit world, so the spirits, he made them before humanity was created. And that makes sense because we get the creation of humanity in Genesis 1. The pinnacle of that is the creation of human beings. And the idea seems to be is that when the spirits were made, they actually saw God making human beings and talking about human beings as if they are the ones made in the image of God. And my speculation is that Satan, on seeing this and on seeing ultimately God's plan, that it was for the exaltation of humanity, ultimately up higher than the angels, ultimately, okay, in God's plan. After all, it's not the angels who are made in the image of God, but it's humanity made in the image of God. Then that's a reason, I take it, why Satan rebelled. He wants to stop the glorification of humanity in the presence of God. And so Satan rebelling at that point, he also recruited other angels to follow him. And we have this idea of a spirit world which is in rebellion against God. And basically the way the Old Testament looks at it is is that the nations were controlled by the spirits. Even the issue of demons, it impacted upon Israel as well. But Israel was to stay away from the demonic influence of the nations. You know, that's something that the food laws and so on were meant to illustrate. So... What we get is the world being controlled by demons. So one way of saying that is the world is in darkness or the world is under the control of Satan. So in effect, we have the kingdom of Satan established on the world. So what we then have is, well, God's not going to leave his world that way. Ultimately, his plan is for the glorification of humanity. How is he going to bring about that? Well, he sends Jesus into the world, bringing in the kingdom of God. And as the kingdom of God comes in, We get a kind of battle at that point. 
And it's a little bit like when magnesium hits a flame, right? You've got your flame there, you've got your magnesium. But when you put those things together, imagining Jesus is like the magnesium, what do we get? We get a massive reaction. And so this is why I believe you've got a lot of demonic activity being recorded in the Gospels because you have Jesus breaking in. He's, in a sense now, beginning the attack on the kingdom of Satan. And just like any war, you know, we've got this happening, don't we? Hopefully it won't happen, but it's looking like it is in the Ukraine. Uh, If you've got the Ukrainian army, Russian army standing side by side, no issue. But once one of those armies starts to go into the other's territory, what do we have? We have a lot of action. We have casualties. We have death and destruction happening. So a little bit like that, when Jesus comes into Satan's territory, there's going to be instances where Jesus is dealing with demons, and we get that in the Gospels. But the key thing is, is that Jesus has power over the spirit world and he is removing the demonic from planet Earth as the kingdom of God comes in and takes control. Interesting, interesting. Okay. Um, So the next question will be... I should also say that ghosts, on that question, ghosts are a little bit different from demons, right? So the idea with ghosts is that ghosts are just the spirits of dead people right so that's a little bit different from demons who are separate beings okay and about this thing about ghosts well there are some people who have reported somehow seeing the spirits of dead people but basically in the bible the normal thing is that the spirits of the dead go to the underworld or the spirits of christians go to be with jesus so there's really there shouldn't be this idea of ghosts although we do see there is one instance when uh, Saul actually he asks to see the spirit of Samuel who's dead at that moment in time and he does actually see uh, the spirit of Samuel so in a sense that's a ghost right so but apart from that you don't really get ghosts talking talked about much in in the bible itself okay uh, um, next question is asking, did the people who disobeyed Jesus' command, verse 36, commit a sin? So, so in verse 36, that's when he told them to don't say anything. Yeah. And they actually went out and talked about it. Yeah. yeah. Well, I'd say any disobedience to anything that Jesus says, that is a kind of sin, right? But I guess the point of this is, here it's, it's really not focusing on their sin as much the the point of this in the passage that little incident is no matter how much jesus told people to be quiet people just kept talking about him so that shows how amazing it was the things that he was doing mm-hmm. and so in a way what happens and we can see this in the gospel of mark remember there's this idea of jesus wanting to try to keep things quiet yeah. he's trying his best because he's got a mission to do and he knows to some extent if he's a miracle worker people will be coming up to him for all sorts of reasons but often that is just to get healed and so on and not necessarily to understand the whole point about the kingdom of god keep in mind too that jesus knows ultimately he has to go to the cross so he's trying to keep lid on things a little bit but it's a difficult task isn't it because the things he's doing are just so amazing the word gets out And as the word gets out, it does make it difficult for his ministry. It does also lead to the Jewish religious authorities paying more attention to him and ultimately thinking they need to get rid of him. Mm. Uh, Next question is, why did Jesus speak so manly to the lady when he normally spoke kindly? It's interesting here. Does Jesus always speak kindly? I don't know. I can think of some things that Jesus says which are actually quite strong. And in particular, one of his ways of talking is he often calls the Pharisees and the religious leaders of his day, the Jewish ones, he often calls them hypocrites, doesn't he? In fact, in Matthew's Gospel, there's a whole chapter where he goes, you hypocrites, you hypocrites, and keeps repeating this kind of language. So Jesus can talk quite strongly. Even think about when Jesus heard about when Lazarus died. 
Lazarus on the point of dying, you think he'd go straight away and see his good friend Lazarus, but Jesus says, no, hey, guys, let's just stay here for a couple of days. So even there, there are certain things that Jesus can do or say that we might think, oh, that seems a bit harsh. But the point of what Jesus is saying here, yes, it is harsh, but he's really testing the Syrophoenician woman when he says that. And so sometimes Jesus can say harsh things just so that people get the message. But there are other times when he will say harsh things, but in order to test people. Mm. And this is one of the ones where he's testing the woman and seeing how she's going to respond. And so I think, you know, Jesus as God in human form, he has the right to be able to speak harshly at times, but some of it will be for the purposes of testing people out. Fair enough. Um, Next question. Uh, Can you please explain verses 11 to 13 and verses 27 to 28 again? All right. So... The point about 11 to 13 is really Jesus just giving another example of how some of the Jewish traditions actually end up going against the word of God. And so the korban, the word korban, basically just means offering in Hebrew. Okay, when you bring something to God, you present something to God, that thing that you present is your korban, your gift, your offering. And so the idea seems to be that there was some Jewish teaching at that time that if they offered up something to God, now remember here, to offer something up to God, you probably have to buy it, right? So if you're giving up money, if you're making a free will offering that involves an animal or grain or something like that, you have to purchase that or else it's something from your flock, right? Or your herd. If you've sold that animal or sorry if 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 you had sold that animal you would have got money from that and that's the kind of resource that you can use to look after your family so the idea seems to be is it's a little bit like us today say um well we know these days most parents probably have a bit of money saved up there's uh, retirement plans all this kind of thing there's government pensions as well okay so these days the burden on the children to look after their parents isn't as great as it used to be back then but if you think about in china in certain places in africa and asia these days where we don't have retirement plans any of these things the responsibility is on the children to look after their parents the parents get old they can't work anymore they probably don't have much in terms of savings so the family Those who can work, in other words, the children, have to look after the parents. Now, if we're in that situation and we end up, in a sense, giving 80% of our income to the church, say, does that absolve our responsibility? We don't have to look after our parents at that point? So that's the issue, okay? So the Jewish teaching from the Pharisees seemed to be, oh, you can give up all your money, in a sense, all your resources to God, and then you're kind of absolved from the responsibility of, providing for your parents in their old age okay keep in mind that most of these offerings are kind of voluntary but is the commandment to honor your parents is that voluntary no that's one of the ten commandments that's something that's mandatory so there needs to be some focus on your responsibility to your family and to make sure that you're taking that responsibility seriously. So you can see at that point, Jesus is critiquing that. That's just another example of how Jewish tradition got in the way of Israelites keeping the commandments. Okay. So, and the other thing was in verses 27 and 28. Okay. So the idea about that harsh saying that Jesus said to the Syrophoenician woman was, Let the children be fed first. The children at that point are the Israelites. And Jesus is saying, in a sense, I've come so that Israel might be fed, that Israel might benefit. Okay, and think about it. Most of Jesus' ministry was restricted to the Israelites. It was kind of only on the fringes that Jesus ever dealt with people who weren't Jews. All right, so Jesus came into the world primarily for the Jewish people in terms of, you know, the specifics of his ministry. And he's kind of reflecting that 
focus at that point. In a way, he's kind of picking up, well, the Old Testament, it focuses on Israel, doesn't it? How is it that you Gentiles get to participate in this? But this is where the woman shows an amazing insight into God's plan of salvation. Somehow, I don't know how, but somehow she realised that, well, God's plan for the world must involve more than just the people of Israel. It must involve the nations too. Now, to what extent she was aware of Old Testament prophecy that talks about that, I don't know. But if you go back to the promise which was given to Abraham, remember that promise? Genesis 12, verse 3, that through Abraham, blessing will come to the families of the earth. In other words, God's plan from ever since the beginning was for the glorification of humanity. It was for blessing to come to the nations. And the, women, uh, the woman there expressed something of that, and that was a statement of her faith. And it's a quite amazing insight into God's plan of salvation. And the point of it here is that we now see, okay, as a result of Jesus coming, we see salvation being opened up to the nations, and the healing of the Syrophoenician woman's daughter is a little sign of that. Does that make sense? Yeah, hopefully the question asker has got a better understanding. Good insight there. Thank you, Steve. Um, a couple more. Uh, so another one is, is it possible that demons or extraterrestrial beings inhabit other planets? Yeah, it's interesting, isn't it? We, we do get, there is a, an idea in the scriptures where the wilderness is kind of pictured, so the wilderness deserted type areas. Uh, in the Old Testament are talked about as if they're inhabited by demons. Uh, that does have some kind of sense to it because the demonic is always associated with death, whereas the Holy Spirit is associated with life. So if you get a zone of the world that doesn't have much life there, you know, there's not much in terms of plants or animals and so on, uh, even the Old Testament prophecies, they look forward to the desert being transformed to become a garden as a result of the work of God's spirit. So wherever there's deserted locations, you get the idea that there are kind of demons lurking around there. Now, when you look out at the other planets in our solar system and scientists seem to think that there are some planets elsewhere in, in the in the universe as well, around certain stars. Most of them are deserted, aren't they? So you sort of wonder, in the spirit world, where are they lurking? Are they lurking in parts of the universe? Well, it's kind of hard to know, but in some ways the spirit world is a little bit distinct from the physical world, but there can be some interaction between them. I guess the bigger question is, is there life elsewhere in the universe? That's the bigger question, isn't it? A lot of the scientists seem to think so because they believe in evolution. They think, oh, if it happened here, it could happen elsewhere. But what are the chances of something coming out of nothing? You know, why do they expect to see that elsewhere? I don't know. The chances of that happening are actually very thin, you would imagine. And the other thing is from a biblical perspective, I would say is that there's no indication of life elsewhere in the universe. If there is, well, that's up to God, isn't it? But the focus seems to be on planet Earth. And so, therefore, my personal view is I'd be very surprised, very surprised to see anything elsewhere in the universe. God's focus seems to be planet Earth. But in the end, we sort of don't know. We'll only know until something is discovered. And whether or not something will be discovered, we don't know, at least up to this point in time. So in the end, I think all we need to do is to have our focus on planet Earth like God does and to realise there's a battle taking place here, and that is the battle between the kingdom of Satan and the kingdom of God. Jesus has brought in the kingdom and he's taking control. And being part of that kingdom, there will be difficulties, there will be opposition and so on, but we can be assured that in the end, Jesus is going to get rid of all forms of the demonic, not only here on planet Earth, even though that's his focus, but even if there are demons lurking elsewhere, they're going to be totally removed, right? So it's going to be a renewed universe in which the demonic no longer exists. 
evil spirits will be banished to a particular place in which they're locked up eternally, never able again to cause havoc anywhere in the universe. All right. Yeah. Very interesting. Um, Now, the final question, I think it's more of a clarification on something that you mentioned earlier, Steve. So um, the question asked wants to know when or where in the Bible does it say that God created the spiritual being before human? Yeah, there's no way that explicitly says it, but the indication, at least in Jewish tradition, and also just the way that Genesis 1 is structured, remember how we get various things made, you get the plants and then you get the animals and then you get humanity, all right, on day six. So humanity is the final creation, at least according to what Genesis 1 says. And so therefore, it makes sense that the spirit world was created beforehand. Uh, there are actually some people who say when God said, let us make man in our image, the our language there is reflecting the divine heavenly council at that point, which would have been populated by angelic beings, as if the angels are seeing what's about to happen. Uh, there is actually, there's a chapter in, I think it's Ezekiel, I have to look it up to know what particular chapter it is, but there is a place in Ezekiel where Tyre, the city of Tyre that was mentioned in the passage today, is talked about. And Tyre was a, a very rich place because it was a trading city, state, and Tyre is pictured as being like Satan, really, and how Satan looked down upon everyone else. And there is perhaps through that some kind of little indication that that maybe Tyre or Satan at that point is feeling jealous about something. So, but anyway, I'll look up what that uh, passage is and I'll post it on the Q&A. So anyone who's interested could look at that actual chapter. All right. Yeah, definitely. I think we should get a mic. Sorry. So yeah, mic would be good, or at least uh, if you help translate for me or just uh, relay the message. Well, thanks uh, for your time, Steve, again. Um, lots of That's mic- okay. Thanks for having me. No worries. Always a pleasure.